Very quickly, there are two things I want to remind you about from last uh, Lord's Day's message. Of course, not forgetting the example of Naboth, a tremendous example of a faithful man of God, a righteous man who would not bow to the pressure of others around him. But the two things I want to highlight particularly are that these three chapters, 20, 21 and 22, they draw attention to Ahab's resistance to the word of God. That's the theme. We're meant to see that, that Ahab is persistently rebellious against the word that comes from God. That helps to some degree to understand the end of the chapter when we see Ahab humbling himself before the Lord. The chapters are given, all three, to show us Ahab's hardness against the word that comes from God. The second thing is also to remind you this chapter highlights the role of the prophet of God. Elijah here, as a prophet ordained of God, is serving in the will of God, functioning as God's ordained servant. And as such, as a prophet, he is a bringer of the word of judgment. That is the role, one of the roles of God's prophets. Hence, Elijah here points us to our Savior, points us to Christ, the incarnate Son of God, who is the great and final prophet. Christ, of course, who comes in the Word, in incarnate form, brings words of judgment, as we saw last time, and who will, as we just sang, come in the final day as the judge of all the earth. And so we're being encouraged here. Again, you don't see these Old Testament passages outside the big picture of the Bible. And the big picture of the Bible is here telling us that Jesus Christ, as the prophet of God, announces and will indeed come and execute judgment. So today the question I have for you is this. How do you respond to Christ as prophet? Again, we see Christ revealed in these various offices, prophet, priest, and king. But if our attention is falling upon him as prophet today, well, how do you in your heart respond to him? The words of promise. Do you gladly believe and hold fast to the promises brought by Christ as the prophet of God? Do you hold on to his precepts? He brings the precepts of God to our hearts that we would obey them. Are we glad to obey the will of Christ as he comes as prophet? But the warnings of Christ, have we paid heed to those warnings? Have we taken refuge in Christ himself? As he warns of a coming death wrath, have we heard those warnings, taken heed to those warnings and ran to Christ to be safe in that coming day of God's wrath? This question we've got to ask each and every Lord's day, each and every day. We say believe in Christ. Well, do we believe in Christ as he is revealed in the word of the living God? And so last time we began this message by considering the cause of this word of judgment. And the word of judgment that comes from Elijah, as we'll see here in verse 19 and following, that word of judgment comes in the context of the stand of Naboth in refusing to sell his vineyard to Ahab. He would not violate God's word uh, that there should not be the transferring of the inheritance of one tribe to another, but rather he's holding on to the inheritance that God has given to him and to his fathers and his family. And he suffers for that stand. He's a righteous man who suffers for the stand. In fact, leaves, he loses life for that righteous stand. 
Verse number 13. They carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. So that's the cause. The background to this word of judgment is the ungodly actions of Ahab, Jezebel, and the Jezreelites leading to the death of Naboth, this righteous man. The second thing today, though, then, is the coming of the word. You see, as we come to the end of verse number 16, all seems to be going well for Ahab and his household. He has taken possession of the vineyard that was his desire. He rose up, went down, and took that which was not rightfully his. Now, when you see verse uh, 16 and verse 18, the writer is actually using these descriptive terms to point us in the direction of the Scriptures. Ahab rose up, he went down, and he took possession. And so God then steps in in verse number 17 and says to Elijah, Elijah, you rise up and you go down. Again, you see this parallel more in the original than we even do in our English Bible. Ahab rose up and went down, and now Elijah is going to rise up and go down in correspondence to the deeds of Ahab. The point is, God has seen, and God is now going to step in. God is going to act in a manner that corresponds to the actions of Ahab in his sin. We'll see later on that all we see here is the justice of our God. God is stepping in. The implication that we're meant to see to some degree is that as Ahab is under the rule of Jezebel, so Elijah is under the rule of God, and he obeys the Lord. Now, of course, it is clear that God has knowledge of these events. Remind you of that again. We've thought of this in recent studies in the fear of God, It is the truth that God is the omniscient, all-seeing God who misses nothing of the sins of mankind. We've got to remember that. You know, your parents, your school teachers may not see your sin. Your spouse may not see your sin. But God sees your sin. Your fellow church members, your pastor, may not identify and see what you do in the secret place. But God does. Getting mindful of the, the wisdom that's given in Job chapter 34. Turn across there because it, does, it relates, of course, to what's happening here in the times of, of Ahab. And Job 34, again, of course, these friends of, the, uh, of Job, they come and don't get much comfort, but Elihu has more wisdom than others. And in Job 34, verse 21, he says this, For his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings, There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. You know, I think to myself of what's happening in the, if you like, the courts of Ahab in this passage. The discussions, the whispers, the letters that are written. All of this is happening on the the down low. But none of it is outside the knowledge of God and the will of God. And God has seen. And God will act in judgment. But yet Naboth is dead. And that provokes a difficult question. If God is going to step in now, why did God not step in sooner? If God's going to act, a few days earlier, Naboth will still be alive. 
and a righteous man would still be living on this earth or at that time. Why does God not step in sooner? You know, just because a question might be testing doesn't mean we shouldn't ask it. You see, when you thought and think about this question, it rises actually time and time again in the Bible. God preserved Moses in an extraordinary fashion. And yet hundreds of other children died. Why? You think of the Lord himself as a child preserved while others died. Herod Agrippa kills James. And yet Peter enjoys an angelic deliverance from prison. Why? Don't we have cause to ask the psalmist, O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? We see the people of God suffering in the days of the Reformation, in the Covenant in Scotland, or even across the world today, there are the children of God who are losing their lives and will lose their lives this very day for the cause of Christ. We sit here in comfort and peace and ease. And we think, Lord, you're so kind to us, withholding the winds of persecution away from the church here in North America. And yet there are those in our nations and they're suffering. They're losing their lives for the sake of the gospel. We have a tendency to go wrong in this area. We presume that if God is just, then he will intervene when we want him or when we feel he needs to intervene. The lesson from Naboth is that God does not guarantee the preservation of the body, but he does guarantee justice. And if we don't grasp this, we will find ourselves either falsely believing that God is good to us and not good to others, or we'll doubt God altogether and say, well, God, your hand must be tied in this situation. No, we can't have all the answers. We cannot give all the explanations, but we can rest in the knowledge that God does guarantee justice. The judge of all the earth shall do what is right and always does what is right according to his wisdom. You see, the timing is in the Lord's as the triumph. And 1 Kings 21 really is a foreshadowing of those fearful New Testament texts. You turn across to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And that's why I sang this hymn of the Lord's return. I want you to see, if you like, in, in picture, typical form, the words of judgment against Ahab. They do foreshadow the coming of Christ when he comes to judge the ungodly. Because what we see in, in Ahab's Achaeus here is that God is taking vengeance it's not a situation where God is unmindful of Ahab's sin, but he sees Ahab's sin, and the language is so very, very clear. Because you did this, Ahab, I'm now doing this. There's cause and effect. God's judgment comes in response to Ahab's sin. And you see a similar thing here as Paul writes to the Thessalonians. And they're, they're suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now, I don't know what's happening in other churches at this time, but perhaps the church in Philippi, they're, they're enjoying more times of ease. They have the support, if you like, of the Roman colony there, and they're, they're, they're enjoying a time of ease, perhaps to some degree. But the Thessalonians are suffering, and they're being persecuted, verse number 4. And they're enduring, their faith is there in their persecutions. And Paul encourages them, 
Not that they will be spared their lives necessarily. He also does not encourage them that judgment will come immediately. But the encouragement is that Christ will indeed come. And when He comes, it says, verse 6, there'll be a recompense of tribulation to them that trouble you. And when Christ comes, verse number 8, He will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Punishment requires guilt. Guilt is a violation of God's law, and those who suffer the justice of God, they do so because they deserve it. But the language here is given in terms of vengeance and the recompense. The Thessalonians, they're still waiting for the final display of public justice. I understand those who persecuted them in their day, they're already suffering in the lake of, they're already suffering, sorry, in hell. But the coming of Christ and then being cast into the lake of fire still waits. The public display of God's justice still awaits the coming of Christ Jesus. So a delay is nothing to God. A thousand years, but a day. No problem to God to wait. And so we must have that same spirit when it comes to waiting for God's justice. We do see. We see injustice wrought against God's people today. And we must not presume that God no longer cares or no longer sees. Remember Naboth. He lost his life. And yet God in his own good time came and brought judgment upon Ahab's head. One man puts it this way. Naboth's God is a true consolation for a fragile church in a brutal world. Naboth's God is our God. And so I emphasize back in 1 Kings 21, I'm emphasizing too, this is a word of judgment. God speaks to Elijah, verse 17, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah, arise, go down to meet Ahab. And we have to see that between verse 19 and verse 20, Elijah obeys the Lord's command. What we're told in verse 18 and 19 is what God tells Elijah to do. What we're told in verse 20 is that Ahab responds. And again, those who understand the grammar better than I do, they say that's an appropriate way to understand the Hebrew. Thus, verse 20 is Ahab's initial response to this word of judgment. Ahab says to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy. But it's Elijah's response to that that I think helps to see what is occurring here. Elijah answers, I have found thee. Of course, the I refers to Elijah. But Elijah is coming as God's prophet with God's word. And so in many ways, we can see the I have found thee to refer to God having found Ahab. The threatenings of verse number 21, Behold, I will bring evil upon thee and take away thy posterity. See that in verse 21? Those threatenings are what God will do, not what Elijah will do. And so you're seeing this interaction because this is true. 
when God sends his prophet, God comes himself. One and the same. You see it with the apostles in the times of the New Testament. The apostle was, in the language of the, of the Hebrew, as the shaliach of the man. He was man's representative. And so when the apostles come and preach, Christ comes and preaches through them. And so it is in the Old Testament. When the prophet comes, God comes. And we must pray to that end. There are Ahabs outside this building. And there are Ahabs in our family. And they have sold themselves to sin and to violate God's will. And we must pray, God, will you find them? Will you get them with the word that they've confronted with their sin and repent of their sin and turn to the Lord? That should be a desire. That God's prophets will find the ungodly and bring the word of God because God comes in and through his ministries. We need to pray for that end. And so when it says here, I have found thee, I do believe in many ways God has found. But he has found Ahab through the messenger. And so again you'll see the messenger here is Elijah. Now we've become used to the boldness of Elijah that we often take it for granted. Yet remember the last confrontation Elijah had with Ahab. What happened after that? Jezebel's going to try to kill him. Threatening his life and of course we find Elijah then making his way ultimately to Horeb. Jezebel has not changed. The death of Naboth has done nothing to lessen Jezebel's reputation as one who is greatly opposed to the work of God. And so we must admire Elijah's boldness again. He does not equivocate or question. God says to him, Arise, go down to meet Ahab. And verse 20 simply says, And Ahab said to Elijah, the understanding is, I've said already, is that he has brought the word of God according to God's word to Elijah. He has brought that to Ahab, and the spirit of Micaiah was a spirit of Elijah. As the Lord liveth, what the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Three things very briefly about the messenger. First of all, please note he is experienced in obedience. We have, of course, back in chapter 17, the first announcement of Elijah upon the scene of history. And he comes to Ahab and brings words of judgment. He is, he's got practice already in bringing judgment to Ahab from the Lord. That's important. I, I know in these chapters, 20, 21, 22, there are other prophets used of God. So Elijah is not the only one. But he comes with this ultimate word of judgment upon Ahab's head. And I believe that God chose Elijah for this task. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in that much. That's Luke 16. He's proved himself to be faithful to the word of God. And God used him in the future. You know, if I can speak to some of the young people here, I hope you have ambitions to serve the Lord. I really hope you have ambitions to do great things for the kingdom. Whatever your calling may be in this world, I hope your ambition is to see great things accomplished for Christ Jesus. But to that end, make sure you're faithful in small things now. Don't despise a small task for the Lord. Our brother exhorted us today to do something for God. 
to serve in the work of God, be willing, put yourself out to do something small for the honor of Christ Jesus. God trains people in the ministry, in the work of God, by leading them little by little, by step by step, for the glory and honor of Christ's name. Elijah has experience. He also must be a man who's equipped of God. It's not taught here, but I have to put it in here. Every man that we admire, we must remember we admire the grace of God in that man. Elijah is not here working in the flesh. He is a man who comes in the power of God. This treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. He's a man who's equipped of God. He's also a man who is an enemy of evil. Look at verse number 20. Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And again, in studying this, I was rebuked, again, with regards to your own view of pulpit ministry, public preaching ministry. One man says this, The public service of Christ is the last place for those who wish to be popular with their fellows. I read that. I am, if people know me, I am very, very averse to confrontation. Naturally, I despise it. And yet in the public ministry, there are times when there must be confrontation. This man continues, unless you're preaching, he's talking to me, unless your preaching stirs up strife and brings down persecution and contumacy upon you, there is something seriously lacking in it. You see, if preachers will preach against hypocrisy and carnality and worldliness and all that's against godliness, you will be regarded as an enemy of those who you oppose. And it comes in the local church. There are times when there are sins that develop in local church that have to be addressed. And the sad thing is, when they're addressed, people often just go up and leave. I'm not saying that, by the way, just be careful here. And people have left in recent times, not suggesting that for one second. But historically, it's the case that when things are addressed, sometimes in the church of God, seeking to promote godliness, then the preacher becomes the enemy of God's people. Again, I do not feel that from anybody at this present time. This is not a word in season. I'm trying to get something out there. That's not the point. Please understand that. It's just a point here. The servant of God, the prophet of God, becomes an enemy of evil. And so if you find yourself, and you're uncomfortable sometimes under the message, don't go home and say to your spouse, or your parents, or your brother or sister, and say, he was getting at me again. I'm not trying to get at anybody. But I must be faithful to the word of God. And at times, that may get at you. Make sure... If it gets at you, you take it as it comes from the Lord's word, as a word to your soul. Even perhaps this morning's Bible class. Do something for the Lord in the house of God in this place. Take it a word from God, that you would seek God's face to do his will in this place. That's the messenger. What about the message? Well, the message is, really comes in, in two different ways. It comes as a message of God's anger, followed by a message of God's justice. Now, these are not following each other in that sense. They're closely connected. But there's a message of God's anger. Verse number 22. 
where the Lord says to him, Wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger. Anger is mentioned here explicitly. Now what you see here, I believe, in the language of verse 22, is a connection with Ahab's sin of idolatry. So not, not so much the iniquity of Naboth, that's going to come. But the iniquity of Ahab when it comes to his idolatrous practices. It's the sins of Jeroboam, of Nebat. It's the sins of Basha, the son of Ahijah. These are men who promoted idolatry. Either the worship of Jehovah through idols or the worship of Baal in any way they fancied. But either way, they were promoting idolatry. And so please turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Because you've got to see, what, what's the context here of God's anger? Well, his anger is because his word has been broken. There's been rebellion against his revealed will. Exodus chapter 20, verse number 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, no worshipping of Baal. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that's heaven above, or the earth beneath, or that's in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. What you're seeing here is the outworking of that word of warning. If you give yourself to idolatry, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers. And that's what happens here. Jeroboam's sin is in the sight of God and is judged of God. Baasha's sin in the sight of God. But their sins is then met upon the children because the children persist in the sins of the fathers. If the children repent, God shows mercy. But as they persist in the sins of the fathers, so then God brings judgment upon their heads. And dear people, we are living in such a generation where a previous generation has turned against God. And they've practiced all manner of idolatry in this nation. And God will bring judgment upon the iniquity of the fathers, upon the children of the generation upon generation of those who persist in the sins of their fathers. He's doing it here. But he's doing it here particularly because of the language of verse number 5 of Exodus, 50, of Exodus 20. For I, the Lord thy God... I'm a jealous God. Again, that language always confused me as a, as a young person. I was always told off for being jealous of something. Like my friend down the street, he had, he had a much nicer soccer ball than I had. And my parents said, well, don't be jealous of that soccer ball. You know, that's not, that's not on. You can't be jealous. And then I'd read the Bible, and God's a jealous God. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, we should not think of God's jealousy in terms of a coveting heart. God's not guilty of that, of course. But the jealousy here is akin to the jealousy of a spouse. When the heart of their spouse goes after another, and they feel within their soul a holy jealousy as the affection of their spouse is given to another. That's my husband. He belongs to me. That's my wife. She belongs to me. Don't you have any attention towards her, any desire towards her? She's mine. He's mine. God 
is seeing the people of God giving their hearts to another, to Baal, to idolatry, to all manner of false gods, and God is jealous for his own name, he's jealous for the glory of his own name, and he's jealous for the good of his people. And so he brings these words of judgment. God would have us love and worship him alone. That is God's will for all of creation. That he alone has all the glory, he alone has all the worship, he alone has the affection of our hearts. Again, if you're struggling with believing in God at this time, you may well say to yourself, well, that sounds very egotistical. If you were like that, yes, that's egotism, but you're not God. And to worship God alone is to express truth. There is no other person, no other thing, no other being worthy of worship alone. God alone is worthy of that worship. Therefore, to worship God alone is true, and it is for your good. For not to worship God is to turn your back against God and pursue the ways of Ahab. So, how's it going today? Is God first in your affections? Is God first in your life? Does His will govern all things? Is His worship of first importance? You know, it's, it's always touchstone sometimes on the Sabbath day. Is God first this day in your heart? Or is your heart considering the football game today? Is that where your heart goes to? Is that where your affection is? Or is your heart frustrated because you can't do your work today? You've all this work to do next week and you just want to get to it today because your heart's there and not worshiping God. You know, it's just, it's one of these days, it's always a touchstone as to how we feel about God. Are we glad to be in the house of God and giving this entire day to the worship of God publicly and privately? Is that where our heart is with God? Because God's a jealous God and does not want our hearts given to another. He wants all of our hearts all the time as we worship and serve Him in this world. That's the message of God's anger. There's also the message of God's justice. Again, back in 1 Kings chapter 21, you see what's happening here with Ahab. There is a direct, I've said already, a direct correlation between Ahab's sin with Naboth and then the, the consequence of God's judgment. And you see verse number 20. I have found thee because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord has seen Ahab's sin. And he brings his judgment to Ahab. Thou hast sold thyself to work evil. And then note verse 21. Behold, I will bring evil upon thee. Remember I said the parallels here? Go up, go down. Elijah, go up, go down. You've sold yourself evil. I will bring evil upon thee. Now the word evil there is used in two different ways. The same word in the original. Ahab's sin, of course, is immortal. It's against God's will. God's evil is not in any way immoral, but he's using the language. He's going to bring tremendous consequence upon Ahab's head for his sin. And the point is that Ahab is guilty of this sin. He willfully follows evil. Look at the language, verse number 20. Thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. It's a vivid picture of what happens in the unconverted soul. Sin is the master. And they sell themselves to serve the master of sin. 
That's Christ's thought, isn't it? John chapter 7, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. But here Ahab's example shows us that those who are the servants of sin are not sin servants reluctantly or against their will. They gladly place themselves under sin as their master. Even when they're encouraged by others to do so. Again, God does not ignore Jezebel's influence here. Verse 25, Ahab did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. You know, you hear it all the time in, in, in court scenes nowadays. Why did you do this? Oh, it's because of my upbringing. Because of my environment. It's because of my, you know, my, my father was this or my father was that. And there's all manner of reasons as to why people do wicked things. Ultimately, no one does anything against their will. They sin because they, seal, they sell themselves under sin as their master. And to such God brings justice. You may have a peer group encouraging you in this way or that way. We live in a wider peer group society, or society is telling us, do this, think this, believe this. You know, if we choose to do this or that or believe that, it's on our own heads. We willingly set ourselves to do the work of evil in the sight of God. And thus God brings judgment. We saw the words of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He brings veins upon those who know not God and obey not the gospel. You know, this message reminds us that God's wrath will come. God is just. He does not ignore sin. He may be long-suffering for a season. He may bring justice in his own time, but he does not ignore sin. And dear people, please understand this. The gospel is not the absence of justice or wrath. At no point does the gospel of God teach that there is no wrath in God or no wrath from God. The cross of Christ is a display of God's justice and God's wrath. And hell is an eternal display of God's justice and God's wrath. The gospel does not remove God's wrath. It addresses it for those who trust in Christ Jesus. The message of God's anger and God's justice is clear in all the scriptures. Well, finally, very briefly, the consequence that arise out of this word of judgment. We've seen the, the cause of it and the coming of it. What are the consequences? Well, interestingly, there is an immediate response in Ahab. Again, verse number 27. When Ahab heard those words, he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. There's a response in Ahab. Is this repentance. One of my online Bibles has as a heading of this section, the repentance of Ahab. I'm thankful that heading is not inspired. It's been put there by an editor of the Bible, and they put there to help people navigate their way through the passage. I think it's not helpful to see this as repentance. The outward signs are there, and God himself notices the signs and modifies the sentence. But the sentence is not cancelled, but postponed. 
And in fact, in Ahab's case, it will come upon his head exactly as the word of judgment is given in verse number 19. You see that over in chapter 22, judgment does fall upon Ahab in exact fulfillment of the words. So between verse 19 of chapter 21 and the end of chapter 22, God's judgment has not changed for Ahab. And yet God always has mercy upon those who turn to him in repentant faith. This passage, dear young people, does not suggest for one second that God ignores repentance. I don't want you to believe that you can turn to God away from your sin and God will not hear your cries. God never turns away the cries of those who call upon him in faith. So what's he seeing here? Well, again, there are various ideas. There are some who suggest that Ahab was not genuine. I don't think that's true either. God acknowledges that Ahab humbled himself before him. So what seems to be the case is that this is remorse rather than repentance. It is temporary and not permanent. And that's the issue. You see, repentance, I think as a word, should be reserved for the saving grace. Hating sin, turning to God for mercy. But remorse hates the consequence of sin and grieves for the consequence but not the sin itself. Ahab here, there's no record of Ahab dealing with Jezebel or restoring God's worship. He seems to show remorse for the consequence of a sin that is predicted, but not with the sin itself. Perhaps there are some here and there was a point in your life where you were fearful of the coming judgment of God and the wrath of God. And you're fearful for the consequence of your sin, but you did not come to hate sin itself. And you did not come to seek the Christ of Calvary. You mourned about what sin would do. Pink says this, Many have been afraid of God's wrath who would not part with their sins. If you're here today, and I, and I don't pretend to judge every single heart, I don't know your lives in secret. But if you're here today and you have a profession of faith that you trusted in Christ and you turned from your sins, but you're still gladly continuing your sin, it may well be that you are fearful of God's wrath but did not fear sin itself. And if that's the case, please talk to someone. Don't rest in the idea that you are terrified of God's wrath, but you're happy to continue in your sin. Those who come to faith in Christ not only fear God's wrath, but they also come to hate sin itself. Don't go to hell with a testament of remorse without true godly repentance. Ahab's response is short-lived. When you get to chapter 22, you see that clearly there is a language, a timestamp here, verse 1, and they continue three years. And as we saw last time in this chapter, in chapter 22, Ahab turns away again from the word of God and has no time for Micaiah, a faithful servant of God. So in the first place, there is remorse from this word of judgment. 
And the second place, there is retribution in this word of judgment. Again, I'm not going through the passages for Ahab. You'll find in chapter 22 and the verse number 38, they washed the chariot outside Jezreel. His blood is washed of that chariot at the very place where Naboth lost his life in fulfillment of the word of God. For Jezebel, it's in chapter 9 of 2 Kings. For the family line, it's chapter 10 of 2 Kings. God does keep his word. And justice is done. You know, God shall avenge his own elect. Luke 18. Those who cry upon him day and night, he shall avenge them. The persecuted church will not suffer a lack of justice. There may be those who lose their lives, but they will not suffer because God is failing to be just. You see, if you're here today, I don't know again every heart. But be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Ahab reaped the consequence of selling himself to do evil in the sight of God. If it's a consequence of his sin. The cross is the perfect display of God's justice. God is just and the justifier of those who trust in Christ Jesus. And if the cross is a display of God's justice, remember that Christ, the beloved Son of God, was spared not the justice of God. God will not turn a blind eye to sin. If he spared not the darling of his bosom, he will not spare those who are outside of Christ Jesus. Justice will be fully meted out. Dear sinner, do you think you can sin and there be no consequence? Do you think you can sin and hide your sin from God? Do you think you can sell yourself to the evil in the sight of God and that not bring down the wrath of God upon your head? But dear believer, justice placed Christ on the cross. Justice that was not satisfied in part but the whole. God is so precise in keeping justice that if Christ died under the just wrath of God, then that death was perfectly sufficient to satisfy the justice of God. So sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Oh yes, we've got to preach the justice of God to the sinner. But that same justice put Christ upon the cross, whereby you, dear child of God, can go home here confident with profound, joyful assurance. If justice is satisfied, then you are right with God. May the Lord be pleased to help us in that thought. We'll come back to that tonight in Romans chapter 10. Let's pray together, please, as we draw our meeting to a close. Eternal God and Father, we come before Thee and we've tried, O Lord, to turn this passage over in our minds to show what You show Yourself to be in the Word of God. We pray for every soul in this gathering and those watching on that they would not live their lives selling themselves to do evil, but rather they would give themselves 
as servants of righteousness, to serve Christ and to worship you, O God, as the one true and living God. Save souls in this gathering. Save those, O God, in our families who are away from thee. We pray, O God, that you'd find them with your word. Draw them to yourself. Lord, God bless the Sabbath day to your souls. May this day indeed be a delight to your hearts. May we delight to worship you, O God, in public and in private. May that be our chief affection today. Bless our hearts. Grant us the Spirit of God to help us in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.